Listen as I read for us a part of David's psalm, Psalm 139, when he writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, uh, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Verse 6, such knowledge, notice that, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. Later in verse 16, David adds, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I wanted us to begin by reading these few verses in light of a question that one of you submitted, if you're a guest with us today. Back in the month of May, I asked our attenders to submit questions that they might have about faith or life, just general questions. And through the months of June and uh, July, my desire is to address as many of those questions as possible. And uh, I think Psalm 139 really gives us the context of the question that I want us to begin with this morning. Now, this is how it was worded to me. How do I walk or live my daily life when it has already been written? Now, the question, obviously, is dealing really with the issue of sovereignty. I mean, if... If my life is written in a book, then really, what are the choices of my life? Maybe I can rephrase the question this way. How do my choices fit within God's sovereign plan? Have you ever wondered that? Now, in Psalm 139, you need to know when David refers to his life being written in a book, what's being emphasized there primarily is knowledge. Or if we want to get all theological, foreknowledge. It's indicating that God possesses an understanding of human history in our lives in a way that far exceeds what we might imagine. Let me see if I can illustrate. God has the capacity to view all of time in human history as a whole. I mean, practically speaking, from his perspective, it, it is a book that has already been written. He sees it, even though from our point of view it's unfolding, from his point of view, he's been able uniquely to look at time in human history as a collective whole. I think it's safe to say that sets God apart from us, doesn't it? It gives him a, a perspective that isn't necessarily ours. And that's what David is commenting on in Psalm 139. He's just amazed at God's knowledge of him. It's as if he knows everything that he will do. That said, you need to realize that foreknowledge 
is not causal. You know, what I mean by that is just because God knows the full story does not then imply that he dictated what is recorded. Instead, foreknowledge is simply a reflection that God has the capacity to look at time as a whole, and he already knew and knows what choices we would make. He didn't dictate the choices. He simply knows the choices. He's conscious of the choices. Maybe it would be helpful to, to give you an example of what, I, what might give us a perspective on that. When a, a historian begins to write a history... He writes the details of what he knows fully, and yet, though he's recorded the history, he did not dictate the events that are reflected. He simply is fully aware, and it's now recorded in a way that it can be later read and understood. I think when it comes to God's knowledge of mankind, God's knowledge of our lives, he does possess uniquely this awareness of things that exceeds our capacity. But just because he has the knowledge of it doesn't mean that he caused the choices that you made. They were your choices. What if I wanted to change my choice? Then this foreknowledge would adjust accordingly, if that makes sense. See, his foreknowledge is a reflection of his understanding of our lives. And I say that as I do because even in Psalm 139 where David is commenting on this extraordinary knowledge of God, notice how he ends the psalm, verses 23 and 24. He ends it with a prayer. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's that last appeal that is insightful. See, David recognizes now, God has all of this knowledge, and what is this prayer? I want you to lead me so that I make the right choice. God's foreknowledge does not in some way invalidate David's decisions that would unfold. No, David anticipated that his choices would matter. He then prays that God would then lead him appropriately. So today, for the time that we have, let's wrestle with this a little bit. One person's raised the question, let's see if we can have a, a better understanding of what the Bible teaches when it comes to how our choices work within God's sovereignty. Let's start by considering this statement. You need to know that your choice, our choices matter. They matter. I think part of the question that I read to start with was wondering, really, does my choices really come into play? It seems like everything's been written. No, what the Bible teaches is that your choices day by day, week by week, matter. That they put into effect consequences that are real. And so your choices aren't just kind of like you're playing out a script, an actor on a play. No, it's not like that at all. Now, God knows the whole, but fact is, every day when you make a choice, that's your choice. And it matters to God. Now, I think a good way to understand the significance of our decisions is to just read through the Gospels and notice how Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, interacts with people. You know what you'll observe? 
Jesus interacts with people with the presumption that they have choices to make. Now, if that wasn't true, then what Jesus is doing is just a charade. But it is true. Jesus appeals to people because he knows within each of them, they will make decisions, they will make choices that will affect their outcome. And so he appeals to them based on that. In John 3, a religious man comes to Jesus trying to figure out, how do I know that I can spend eternity with God? And Jesus tries to point him to that. And as we read at the start of the observance of the Lord's Supper, Jesus summarized it succinctly in verse 16. And what does he say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, focus on the two words, whoever believes. As Jesus is speaking to this man, he wants him to realize that with each of us, there will be a decision that we make to believe or to not believe. If we believe in him, then the outcome is what? He says, you'll not perish and you will in turn have a life with God, but on the other side of that, let's follow it through. If you choose not to believe, then what happens? You will perish and you will not experience eternity with God. Whoever believes. When I was a boy growing up, uh, the most common Bible translation was the King James Version. And I still remember how John 3.16 was translated in the King James Version. It used the word whosoever believes. And it did so, I think, deliberately, because you see the word whosoever really does seem to highlight that this could be anyone and everyone, that no one's potentially excluded from belie believing. No, whosoever believes has the opportunity to experience life or death. It's a choice. At least that's how Jesus describes it. In the Gospel of Luke, there's another uh, moment where I think Jesus is underscoring the importance of individual decisions. Luke 9 and verse 23, listen to what Jesus says. If anyone, notice how broad that is, I think anyone pretty much implies anyone and everyone. <laughs> if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Notice. Daily. So there seems to be emphasizing kind of a continuing pattern of choice and decision. Take up his cross daily and follow me. If I hear Jesus correctly, he seems to be explaining that with each and every one of us, we have decisions to make, don't we? And if we would come after him, that's our choice, we then decide to say no to ourselves and to follow after him. It's a choice. The very next verse, Jesus expands it. He says now, for whoever, or in the old King James, whosoever would save his life will lose it. In contrast, but whoever or whosoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, I could spend the rest of the next 20 minutes going to one example after the next where Jesus is interacting with people. And you know what we'll discover? Jesus recognizes that with each of us, we have decisions to make and that our decisions, our choices matter. 
You're not playing out a script. You're given an opportunity to make right or wrong decisions. I stand before you as a person who chose to believe in Jesus Christ. And because I made that decision, I've received forgiveness in life. Have you made that choice? Now, there was another question similar to the first that someone raised as we're talking about choices. Listen, as I would read it, in one church's radio broadcast, I heard, that the, preach, I heard the preacher talk about free will and the meaning of faith or salvation. He concluded that humanity needs to give up free will to best serve the Lord. If free will is the signature trait of humanity, would it not be doing the Lord a disservice to eschew that great gift and serve him with a lack of choice in the matter? Wouldn't it be greater to give our worship to God knowing that we have the full choice to do so? I think the answer to that question is yes. Indeed, as we look at what the Bible teaches, what we don't want to ask is for God to eliminate our choices. We would ask instead that God would help us to understand him and the truth in such a way that we would then respond to him freely in faith and devotion. That that, in a sense, is really kind of the culmination of what God intended when he created Adam and Eve at the start and gave them volition. He's wanting us to realize that that's what is in front of us. That our choices matter. See, I, I think some people want to argue against responsibility for choices because they don't want to accept responsibility. And yet, the Bible insists that your choices are yours and that there is an outcome and that you are responsible for the outcome. So, let's begin by affirming, as the Bible would, our choices matter. Yet, I should add, as you think about the early question, well, how does it work within God's sovereignty? You need to realize the Bible equally teaches that God's sovereignty is real. That it's not imaginary. That God is sovereign. Now, I could read dozens of verses to highlight that. Let me just read, though, a few just to set kind of the, the stage for us as we think about it. Listen to what the psalmist says about the sovereignty of God in Psalm 93.1. He begins with a declaration, the Lord reigns. Then he speaks poetically, he's robed in majesty, the Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. The psalmist declares without hesitation, our God reigns. Psalm 103, verse 19, similar testimony. The Lord, the writer says, has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Or let's let God speak for himself as he revealed truth through the prophet Isaiah. Listen to what is said on God's own behalf in Isaiah 46, verse 9. God says, I am God. And there's no other. I am God and there is none like me. I hope you would agree with that. Declaring, notice, the end from the beginning, highlighting his knowledge. 
and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. We could spend the next 20 minutes just reading verses that underscore God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Now, before I move on, though, let me just insert, by the way, Jesus, God's son, claimed the same. At the conclusion of his ministry, after he died for us and rose again and spent some time trying to prepare his disciples, he then is described as ascending on high. But listen to what he said before he ascended. I'm reading from Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Wow. What did Jesus just claim? Sovereignty. In a similar way, he's claiming deity. See, only God is sovereign. Jesus then is asserting that he is sovereign, which means he is God. And he, he says, now, this is true of me. I have all authority. And then he commands his disciples to act, to choose. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, see, if our choices didn't matter, why did Jesus ever command anyone to do anything? It would have been presumed we would just go ahead and do it, right? It's, it's been scripted. See, even following his greatest victory, Jesus announces his sovereignty and then commands his disciples to act, to go and share what they know. And so what we have in the Bible is a consistent testimony. When we look at God and consider who he is, he's not only all-knowing, he is also in the position of all authority. He is sovereign. So how does this sin interact with our free will? I mean, how can that be reconciled? Well, let me see if I can give you maybe a better awareness of that. When we think about the sovereignty of God, you need to think of it in two ways. First of all, you need to think of it in terms of what I would refer to as his decretive will. Now, if you were with us last, sun, last summer, we did a series on discovering God's will. And some of you heard this term maybe for the first time in the midst of that service. What I mean by decretive is, see, there is, under God's sovereignty, a will that he has decreed will be. It's declarative. He has pronounced, it's predetermined that there are certain things as sovereign God that he has guaranteed will be. And there's nothing that any of us or anyone else can do to stop it. It's decreed. It's decretive. It will be done. And we could look at some examples, but you know the primary example of the decretive will of God is focused on his work of redemption? Do you realize that? That if you read the Bible, God's not kind of driven by just throwing his power around and say, look what I can do. He's primarily driven to find a way to address a sinful and rebellious mankind. And from Genesis to Revelation, you want to understand the decretive will of God? You need to know he has decreed that he's provided a way of salvation. Now in the Old Testament, he 
prophesied, declared that a promised one would come. Over and over and over again, prophecies were revealed. And in the New Testament, they were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In a way, when you look at God's primary decretive will, it primarily is centered on his work to restore a broken and sinful mankind. And it is embodied in Jesus Christ. It's, it's all about Jesus. And you should realize there's nothing that anyone or anything that could do to stop that. Now, I say that as dogmatically as I have because I read the book of Revelation, which describes the end of human history as we know it, and the culmination of Jesus' redemptive work. And if you're not aware, it's already a settled matter. It's not in doubt. It's not in question. It's going to happen. See, it's been decreed, declared, determined, predetermined. Indeed, if you go to Ephesians chapter 1, you know what? The Apostle Paul says this. This decretive plan of salvation actually was decreed, determined, even before the world was made, before the foundation of the world, God decreed that men and women would find salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. See, that's decreed. It, there's nothing that will alter that. But as you look at that, you need to realize as we talk about the sovereignty of God, that God in his sovereignty also allows for a permissive will. See, when God created Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and placed them in, in Eden so that they could live life, he fashioned them in a way that they had choice. Now, their free choice came under his sovereignty. He sovereignly chose to do that. That was his decision. Mankind didn't kind of claim it as their own. No, God fashioned them with that out of his sovereignty. Now, as he did so, here's how it plays out. He then recognizes that individuals will make decisions and that those decisions will have outcomes. That's permissive will. Now, it's not in spite of his sovereignty. He is still sovereign, but out of his sovereignty, he's chosen to allow for the reality of choices and decisions. It should be stated that our free will, though, doesn't happen in a vacuum. See, even as God established this world as we see it, he also sovereignly established I don't know, how would you describe it? Kind of laws or principles, uh, uh, laws of creation. I mean, you study the laws of creation. We know that gravity informs us that if you go on top of this building and jump off, what will happen? You will go down. See, it's a cause and effect reality. Your choice doesn't suspend that. God gave you the choice, but he also instituted these continuing laws or forces that impact the decisions that we make. And sadly, as a result of mankind's rebellion in Genesis 3, even the natural creative laws of creation have been distorted and affected by the brokenness of our, our sinful ways. 
But see how it's, it's kind of in play. And still further, there is what I would describe as the principle of cause and effect that was introduced with the opportunity to choose. That with each choice, there is a consequence. I know 2019, we want to pretend that we can make choices without consequence. That never has existed. Part of the opportunity to choose under God's sovereignty includes then cause and effect. Now, when we choose wisely, then we benefit from that, right? When we choose foolishly, not so much. The outcome isn't what we want. But we shouldn't be surprised because, see, in God's sovereignty, he has introduced us into a system where choices matter, but so also do the consequences and the effects of them. And what's sad, and this is what we never take into account, we don't fully grasp how far-reaching our choices are. See, somebody asked a question about the numbers of people that may never hear about the gospel, and is that fair? In fact, let me just read it for you. It's a longer question, but listen to it. The person wrote, around the world there are billions of people that lived and are living and will live without ever knowing about Christianity, Jesus, and God, and even more that, that, even more that have heard little but not enough to make a decision. There are missionaries, of course, but there can never be enough so that everyone, everywhere, always have a fair chance to hear everything and make a decision to follow God. Does that mean that some people are chosen? Well, let's look at this just for a quick moment and think through what, what the question is, is trying to have us consider. First of all, let me stay on the front end. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible teach that life is fair. Do you know that? Life isn't fair. You want to know why life isn't fair? Because people have choices. And we've put into motion effects that seem to kind of create a lot of the inequities that we see around us. It's a cause and effect reality. But in this question, what does the person raise? Well, I'm not so sure that God is fair. See, because, see, some people have greater opportunity to hear about Jesus. And since they have great, greater opportunity, that's not really fair for those that don't have the same opportunity. So then that's not really fair. Now, before I address that directly, let me just make a comment. Do we really want God to be fair? You know what fairness will result in? All of us are judged. You want to sign up for that? I want fairness, okay? The wages of sin is death. You're condemned. Now, the Bible doesn't present God in terms of his plan of redemption as seeking to have fairness. He describes God as doing everything necessary to provide a way of redemption. Whenever someone poses the question, I just don't think God is fair, I say you need to spend at least an hour thinking about what Jesus endured on the cross and then tell me about how unfair God is. God incarnate went to the cross so that he could redeem those who would Respond. You say, well, what about the billions that never hear? Well, let's stay with that for a moment. I used to have the opportunity to travel to India before I got put on some list that they won't let me in anymore. But, you know, there's almost 2 billion people in India, most of whom are not believers in Jesus Christ. 
But did you know one of Jesus' earliest disciples, Thomas, traveled to India in the first century? They have record. I mean, they talk about that in the nation. They note, well, Thomas came here, and he came delivering the message of Jesus Christ, that there's hope in Jesus. Now, incidentally, they killed him because of his testimony, but he went there. The witness was given, but stay with me. You know what happened? People heard, and some chose to reject. They turned away. And here's the cause and effect. Because they turned away, their children turned away. And their children's children, and their children's children's children, children's children. Do you see how this goes? See, it's not that God was deliberately trying to withhold salvation. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, says, it's within God's heart that all would be saved. But see, God's not going to suspend out of his sovereignty this principle of cause and effect. He gave us choices. And our choices not only affect us, they affect those that follow us. You do see that, right? God's not unfair in establishing a decretive will and a permissive will. In fact, look at both of those together. This is how God works. And what's astounding to me that is life, you see, is then the unfolding, remarkable unfolding of both of these realities. We have a sovereign God who is acting decretively to accomplish things that are clearly going to be accomplished, and yet simultaneously we have this permissive dynamic of our choices that's in play. But what the Bible says is that life, as we see it then, is just the kind of the remarkable unfolding of both of those realities. Now, I use the word remarkable because I think it is. And my favorite verse when I think about how these realities converge is, is maybe one of your favorite verses. It's found in the New Testament book of Romans in verse 28, where the apostle says this to those who've responded to Jesus. We know, at least we should, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's astounding if you think through the implications, because you see, what that says is, even though all of these people are making their choices and cause and effect are being put into play, and I'm making good choices and bad choices, cause and effect of being put into play, but he says now, because of our relationship with God through Jesus, that this is the promise. God will work to accomplish what? Good. He's not saying everything is good. He's saying he's seeking to bring about a good in, in spite of all of the various choices around us. Now he elaborates on that, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, the goal of God's activity is to bring us forward so that we reflect the creator who loves us. And as we experience that reflection of Christ in our lives, we experience fullness in life. And the promise is that God can do that every day of my life. I mean, that's remarkable, isn't it? I'm not going to lie. It's also a little mysterious how does it fit and work? I mean, I can't really 
reconcile it in my mind. It is mysterious. Allow for that. Maybe here's a, a visual picture. Imagine your life on this enormous tapestry, larger than one that you could ever imagine, and your life is represented by one thread, and everyone else's life is represented by a separate thread. Are you there? And our choices are weaving through this tapestry, aren't they? See, that's the permissive will. But what astounds me, in the love of God, in all of our lives, there is also added a scarlet thread. A thread that isn't in place of yours, but seeks to weave its way with you and around you to move you to experience even more of a God who loves you. The thread is there. It's constantly pulling. See, it's not one thread where it's a tug of war. No, there is the thread which is your life, but there's the thread of God's activity towards you, trying to move you and your life to the place that he and Ultimately, you would want it to be. Now, that's just mysterious to me. Because, see, when you multiply my life, then by the billions of lives that are, how extraordinary is our God that he would engage in that level of activity? So, oh, that's just outlandish. There's no way. Hey, we've got computer systems that are dealing with multiple tasks simultaneously, millions upon millions of tasks. Our little grandson uh, has been with us over the weekend, and we have an Alexa. He's constantly trying to talk with Alexa. But you think about it, how many people are simultaneously talking to Alexa, and yet Alexa is somehow, through computers, able to process all of that? I'm just saying our God is greater than any computer system that has been known to man. He has no problem weaving in and out of our experiences to bring us to where we need to be. Now, my choice matters. His sovereignty is real. But what I need to do is move toward experiencing the power of that. Leave you with two verses that might help you toward that end. These were, in my childhood, some life verses. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Maybe you know them. The writer says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding, but instead notice in all your ways, implying the choices that you're making, acknowledge him, submit to him, and he will make straight your path. He then will bring you to where you need to be. And so to me, instead of discounting my choices, what I want to do is affirm my trust in God and say, oh, God, you bring me to the place that I need to be. Help me to know what you want me to do. Move me in the direction that I should go. I'm not pretending that's always going to be simple and clear. One final question someone submitted involved prayer. And that's a great question when you talk about free will. I mean, if everything has already been predetermined, then why pray about anything? Well, the writer James says, some of you have not because you ask not. So you see, prayer does matter. We, there is this interplay between asking and receiving. But the point I'm making here is the person was saying, well, listen, I have, I've had a, an illness that I've been asking God to heal me. And I did that for a period, and, and I'm not being healed. Is it wrong then for me to begin to pray that God will teach me how to live out appropriately, to be more sympathetic and maybe be a light in the midst of this hardship to others so that that, that might be seen? And that, that's a great question, isn't it? But sadly, the person then added, I've been 
moving in that direction, but some people are telling me that, that I've given up faith, that faith would just keep on asking with the presumption that God's going to reverse the illness. When the truth of the matter is, if you come to the Bible, God's never promised that every illness is reversed, every illness is healed. What God promises is to bring us through these life circumstances in a way that accomplishes a, a, a meaningful and a far-reaching purpose. And, and so, as the person asked the question, they really already had the answer. God's guided them to say to God, now, Lord, I've asked you to heal, and that's not what you're desiring, so I'm asking you now to accomplish with me and in me and through me what you desire. See, that person has come to appreciate that they're bringing their free will under God's larger will, desiring for God to accomplish what he desires. Well, I hope uh, in addressing the questions as we have, it's given you some perspective. I imagine, maybe as I've talked about it, it's probably raised even other questions. And as I said last week, if you have further questions, email me, call me. I interacted with a couple of people this week. I'm not pretending to know all the answers, but when it comes to the issue of sovereignty and, and free will, I'm not going to be pushed to either extreme where it's all God's dictating or it's all our choices. I think the Bible in an extraordinary way, portrays how it's the blending of the two. And that's what we move toward. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the attentiveness of those here today, for the opportunity to talk about our choices and your will and your sovereignty. Help us in our own way to respond to you now appropriately relate to you in a way that would bring us forward to experience even more of you as we trust in you. Teach us these things, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.